The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Thank you, Margo. We just had a very good conversation before um, uh, this event, and um, I appreciate you having me back and for doing these sorts of things for authors. It, it, it means a lot to us um, in this business. Um, this book um, is a strange book in many ways for me. Um, it's strange because it's totally different from anything I've done before. It's strange because in, in approach. Um, it's strange because um, I'm a journalist by profession, and um, it is, to a very substantial degree, a, a book of history, and I'm, I don't have an academic training as a historian. Um, uh, it's strange because it tries to marry, perhaps now and then in an unwieldy or, or awkward way, these two things. Um, I think the historian's piece is, the, is by far the bigger piece of the uh, component of the two. Um, uh, and it's strange because it's, it comes at a moment of, um, uh, I mean, the timing was a tiny bit off. If I, if I were a marketer, I'm not a marketer. But it, 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 it comes at a propitious moment in the sense that I think that the world is really coming to grips with um, a new phase of Chinese uh, <coughs> geopolitics and of China's approach to the world. And you can debate about the best catchphrase or word to describe this. Um, in, in journalism, the word assertiveness has often been used. And so the book is really uh, an attempt to, in part, an attempt to try to understand what is often called Chinese assertiveness and to say, what does this mean in terms of where does it come from and what does it mean in terms of uh, where is it going to take us or what does it mean for us as a society and for the world more broadly. Um, it's really a book at heart about the power of uh, history, of narrative, and of national myth. Um, and I say those three things in no particular order. Um, but before I get into the Chinese, uh, the set of Chinese histories and narratives and national myths that constitute the core of the book, I think I should kind of give a, a disclaimer of sorts uh, in, by saying that China is no, in no way particular about having myths, national myths or national narratives, so, uh, you know, its own sense of itself that's crafted from an idealized vision of its past. Um, it's, it's important that um, anyone who thinks about China's place in the world and the questions that I just described not think that China is alone in uh, fashioning ideals. Uh, both about its own behavior and about its place in the world. Um, and it, this is a, make a very interesting time for thinking about such things in our own, with, with regard to ourselves, for those of you who are Americans uh, in the room. Um, we have a very particular national myths, which throughout most of my lifetime, I think uh, most of the people on most days don't pause to question or to think very deeply about. We take a lot of things for granted. We take for granted that we are a, a democratic society, that our role in the world is to spread goodness and light, and that we, we um, favor participatory democracy everywhere where we see a chance to influence things, and we stand for human rights and universal values and lots of, lots of really good things, right? Um, Fortunately, there's some truth to that, but if you scratch around a little bit in our history and you don't have to scratch very hard, 
you begin to find lots of ways in which these things haven't in practice always been true or perhaps even often have not been true. Um, and this is, again, a, a really interesting moment to, to um, I wish it were not such an interesting moment. If this is an interesting moment to think about that. Um, so, so the myths that are um, in, under discussion with regard to this book and in this book and for us tonight really go to how China construes itself as a geopolitical actor. Um, and uh, I start the story um, back in the Han Dynasty, which is uh, uh, begins around the year 220 BC, 221 BC, something like, something like that. I should have looked up the date before I began speaking to you, but it's right around there. Um, uh, and um, so this beginning of my story is the answer to, um, as I told Margaret during the podcast, the reason why I titled the book Everything Under the Heavens. Uh, Everything Under the Heavens is my attempt at a more poetic translation of the Chinese uh, set phrase Tian Xia. Um, uh, uh, and um, this phrase, the, the sense of the phrase that I'm using in this book derives from the Han Dynasty. So prior to the Han Dynasty, the preoccupation of Chinese, uh, what we shall call for convenience sake, Chinese states, there was no such thing as China back then. China, there's been no such thing as China until very recently in terms of an appellation or a name. Um, but the preoccupation of, Han, of Chinese states prior to the Han Dynasty was creating a unitary whole out of this thing that we call China. So you had the Warring States period, et cetera, et cetera, and small kingdoms or medium-sized kingdoms were vying for supremacy or creating alliances and battling back and forth. And in the Qin Dynasty, this culminates in a unification of China uh, under uh, um, the, the first Chinese emperor. Um, and so, Tiansha, prior to the Han, was about creating a sense of all under heaven, which is the traditional translation of everything under the heavens, was about creating an authority or a legitimacy for a Chinese leader in this, uh, in, uh, in, in this idealized vision of a one unitary Chinese entity or constituency, which, becomes under, which comes to fru fruition in the Qin dynasty under um, um, uh, the first Chinese emperor. Um, under the Han, the orientation begins to shift, um, and the meaning of my um, uh, title begins to um, uh, come into being. And that is all under heaven, not meaning one central authority that's recognized by all quote unquote Chinese people, but a, a sense of legitimacy in a broader world. And this broader world is construed, has been construed by historians that uh, oftentimes as um, going back to the Han Dynasty as what for them and what for other early dynasties was considered the known world. And so this known world was not just the unitary Chinese state that was created by the Qin Dynasty, but the surrounding peoples. Um, and um, a notion which is a core Chinese belief that is, has in some um, phases of Chinese history been very consciously articulated and in other phases of Chinese history been um, implied or uh, unstated but understood is that in China's neighborhood, 
China should be its natural position. The ideal position for China is one of preeminence. Uh, and that this preeminence is based on what, from the perspective of Chinese civilization, are some very obvious facts. The first obvious fact is that the Chinese civilization, compared to any neighboring civilization, and almost compared to any civilization throughout Chinese history, has always been disproportionately larger in size. Uh, at various points in time, uh, the, the place we call India has had more people, and that may be the case again soon. Um, uh, but in general, China has been the largest society around. Um, the second uh, uh, given from the Chinese perspective is that we, the Chinese, have the greatest longevity in terms of civilization. So the Chinese were not in any deep uh, discourse with, I don't think any discourse with the Greeks and not any deep discourse with the Romans, uh, but they have always, or, or the Egyptians, they have always taken for granted that they are the oldest peoples around. And this is one of the most, most of you will have heard at some point either from a living, speaking Chinese person or you have encountered in print somewhere that we have 5,000 years of civilization or some version of that phrase, Glorious. right? Sorry? Glorious civilization. Glorious civilization, right. Yes. And I don't want to be uncharitable. That, you know, uh, Chinese civilization is actually quite glorious. Um, like any civilization, glorious or not, there's lots of gory stuff and kind of unpleasant stuff too. But, you know, it's, it's not unreasonable to consider this to have been, uh, to, to have uh, <coughs> included a lot of glory, right? Um, so the, I, don't, I don't want to take too much time on the kind of prologue here. But the other given from the Chinese perspective is that China has been so. Um, uh, biggest, uh, greatest longevity. The other considerations are richest and highest cultural achievement. That the norm from the Chinese perspective has been, we're the biggest people around, we're the oldest people around, we are the richest people around, and we are the highest achieving people around in cultural terms. And by and large, you can quibble about how to measure these things, but these are not absurd notions. So around these ideas, uh, a complex of attitudes begins to emerge in the Han Dynasty, which says that a wonderful basis of peace, in fact, perhaps the best basis of peace and prosperity, is for people in the known world to come to terms with China on that basis. That if you recognize us as the biggest, the greatest, the richest, the most, the longest in terms of longevity, the highest achieving in cultural terms, and come to us paying the right kind of honors, then we will bestow all sorts of cultural goods upon you uh, and bring you into the fold and treat you well. And on this basis, peace and prosperity will follow for you and for the region. This is a very simplified explanation of the title of my book and the notion of Tian Sha. Of course, when you begin to uh, stir around in the pot of history, you understand that just like, uh, just as I spoke of American history as not being all goodness and light and representative democracy and defending human rights, that Chinese history is not all, uh, does not, is not entirely constituted or even maybe largely constituted by the sorts of idealized behaviors and visions that I just described. Nonetheless, these attitudes are very, very deeply held in China. And I believe 
continue to be deeply held in China, and I believe continue to be somewhat normative in terms of the way China engages with surrounding peoples. And I think these attitudes have some degree of power of explanation for understanding how China is engaging in current day disputes and problems with its neighbors in the immediate vicinity of China and with the United States, which China sees oftentimes as the principal obstacle uh, for it uh, in returning to this idealized way of getting along in the world, and in particular getting along with um, the people in its known world, meaning its immediate vicinity. I want to tell a few really quick stories <coughs> to illustrate uh, how um, unquestioned in the minds of Chinese statesmen over the era, over the throughout the dynastic era, these attitudes have been. And the first story goes back to the Han Dynasty itself. So, Vietnam. I, I explore Vietnamese history at, at, at great length in this book because I think Vietnamese history is really, truly, vitally important to understanding Chinese history in a way that is underappreciated even by specialists in Chinese history. <clears throat> Vietnam, to be really simple about this, was settled by uh, an amalgamation between indigenous peoples who had a very long history of their own small kingdoms in the territory we now call Vietnam, and vanquished dynasts in China who, as uh, authority in China radiated out from beyond, well beyond the Yellow River, uh, the plains around the Yellow River uh, in the north of China throughout all of the eastern two-thirds of present-day China. And as Chinese authority, what I'm calling Chinese authority, begins to press south, a series of local dynasts begin to be defeated. And as they're defeated, they have two choices. They can be incorporated in the new system or they can look for some other place to reign. And so this creates population pressures as some of these peoples decide to keep moving south in, term, in a way that, that they hoped they could pr preserve their own status and authority and not be subsumed into this greater thing that for simplicity's sake we'll call China. So Vietnam is a marriage really of people fleeing from China and these um, aboriginal uh, inhabitants. Um, in the second century BC, a Vietnamese ruler, I'm calling it Vietnam, it was of course not called Vietnam, uh, the Chinese called it Yue, uh, which is still what they call it. Uh, Yue means, if you do a little etym etymological research, it means barbarian. Um, uh, the Chinese, uh, so uh, one of these Yue rulers decides that he, he had been very successful in his rule and he thought, well, king doesn't seem like an adequate title for me. I think I would like to call myself an emperor. And so he has a, 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 um, uh, a ceremony uh, to take on the patent of authority of an emperor and to sort of sit on this new throne. And word gets back to China that there's some guy in the known world who is calling himself an emperor. And so the Chinese emperor sends an embassy. Back then, and indeed throughout most of history, embassies were not fixed things. Embassies were traveling delegations. So he sends an embassy to, to the Yue kingdom. 
and it, with a letter. And the letter is written in kind of parables. And the parable says, in effect, um, whenever, wherever two emperors arise, one must either die or disappear. He didn't say which one has to die or disappear. He left it to the imagination of the Yue Emperor to understand that. <coughs> and so the Yue Emperor, uh, I'm imagining the, the, the scenario here, but I, I, I'm pretty sure the Yue Emperor goes into sort of counsel with his uh, advisors, and there's, uh, well, this sounds like a declaration of war, we better do something. And the Yue Emperor sends a letter back to the Chinese Emperor and says, you know, forget it. I don't want to be an emperor. I'll just be a king if that's okay with you. Um, I, I, I lie down on my mat every night and all I can think of is the stability of the Han dynasty and of the wonders of the Han people. Um, please let me rest in peace on my mat. Um, <coughs> that's, uh, that's story number one about what it means, what Tian Sha means and what centrality in this unchallenged and unchallengeable uh, uh, preeminence means in the, in, in the known world, in the vicinity of China, means for a Chinese ruler, or has meant over the ages for a Chinese ruler. The second um, uh, story, you have to fast forward to the seventh century AD. And um, so I believe this is the Song Dynasty. Um, a, um, a Japanese ruler sends an embassy to China. Uh, it happens to be an empress. Japan has only had, I think, two empresses in, in the, across the span of Japanese history. And the empress sends, so this traveling embassy, a delegation bearing gifts of various kinds of honor. Um, I'm avoiding deliberately the word tribute because the Japanese say they have never paid, they did not pay tribute but gifts nonetheless, along with a letter. Uh, and the Japanese empress says, introduces, her name is Suiko. She introduces herself to the Chinese um, emperor of the moment. Um, and it says, this is the emperor, even though it was a female, she, um, in Japanese, there's no gender to, the, to, to a title like this. So she says, this is the emperor of the rising sun, writing to the emperor of the setting sun. <laughs> Now, I don't think she meant rising and setting wasn't meant as provocative or an insult. Um, this was meant because Japan is to the east of China, and the sun, if you think about the way cosmology would have worked back in a period like this, it just seemed logical. It's a logical setup. The sun starts over here, it sets over there. That's not what the Chinese side got hung up on. The Chinese side got hung up on the same thing that happened with the Vietnamese would-be emperor. Here is an emperor in some place called Japan presuming, deigning to address herself as the equal of the Chinese emperor. That's impossible. That's just simply cognitively <coughs> impossible. And so the Chinese court never delivers the letter to the Chinese emperor because they didn't want their own heads lopped off and, you know, who knows what would have happened. So, so the Japanese em embassy was sent back and told, you know, if you wish to be received in the future, Here's how you do it. And the Chinese side gave them d detailed instructions about protocol and calendar and all sorts of things, and not least title. Um, fast forward now again to the, um, I think, the 12th century. The Japanese sent another embassy to China. 
and they said to the Chinese, um, you know, they didn't make the mistake of getting the titles wrong this time, but they said to the Chinese, we have a, we've been thinking about this for a very long time. The China, part of the, I've also been avoiding this term, um, but maybe it's time to introduce it, part of the tribute system, the system of, uh, it's kind of like a Bohr atom, you know, the physicist Niels Bohr, who had uh, an atom that um, uh, constituted was constituted of a nucleus surrounded by rotating electrons, and all of the electrons are in orbit around the nucleus, uh, and it depends, you know, each is in its own separate orbit, discrete orbit. Um, uh, part of this tributary, the tributary system you can imagine as a Bohr atom, where China was inevitably the nucleus and, uh, you know, various con constituents or components of the known world uh, were placed in orbit around it. And China always knew how they would relate, they, both parties ideally, always knew how they related to each other on that basis. Part of, part of that system, I'm calling the tributary system now briefly, uh, and it's controversial because system implies coherence and consistency, and coherence and consistent consistency especially did not uh, exist. Um, China had different modes of operating with different um, uh, tributary states, and so it's uh, oversimplifying, many people would say, to call it a tribute system. Nonetheless, part of this system um, uh, involved China deciding what, not just who your ruler, giving a patent of authority upon the um, seating of a new ruler, but deciding what your country should be called. I've given you the example of Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam, even today, is still called Yue. Yue, even today, still means barbarian. Um, there was, a, in the early 19th century, uh, no, in the late 19th century, the Vietnamese tried to change the name of Vietnam. China declined. They said Vietnam wanted to be called Nan Yue. They didn't even want to take the barbarian out. They just wanted to be change the order of the words. Nan Yue meaning South Barbarian. And the Chinese said, no, barbarians of the South. Um, <coughs> um, anyway, so in the 11th century, 12th century, the Japanese sent an embassy to, to, to uh, visit the Chinese capital to pay honors to the Chinese emperor and to say, we've been deliberating on this problem for a very long time. The, way that the name that you have authorized for our country, which, which, with, which the Japanese have used, is somewhat unappealing. It has a kind of negative connotation. We wonder if we can't figure out a different way to call ourselves that would agree with you. Um, does anybody know what the, what the character was for, for, for Japan that was in use prior to this? Can you help me? Any, I see you nodding your head. So in Japanese, it's wa, um, and I can't remember what the Chinese reading of it is. But in any event, the character means bent or crooked. Um, uh, according to one reading, um, unusually short, <laughs> which is revealing because one of the persistent uh, derogatory words for Japanese and Chinese is Xiaoyuban, you know, they call people, you know, you're not just a short, you're short people and you're a little country. Um, the Japanese came and they said, we would really like it if you would agree to letting us use. And in the end, I don't know what the Chinese side said, but in the end, the Japanese simply made a break and began to call their country 
as I had said, the origin of the sun, which is why Japan is called what it's called. Anyway, the point of all of these stories, and these are developed, and this history is developed at great length in my book, is that, is that this uh, idealization of the past has taken, has assumed very deep roots in China. If I teach Chinese students. Jerry Cohen was asking me about what I teach at Columbia at the, just before we began. I teach a seminar on contemporary China and journalism covering China every, every spring at Columbia. And I, inevitably, I have five or six Chinese students, and they're all very smart. They're all very eager to learn, and they're usually very personable. Um, and um, the consistency of their notions of history, even though it's repeated every year, in, from my end of the equation, is, is, is absolutely striking. Um, almost none of them, well, there have been rare exceptions, that have ever considered or certainly realized that China, that being imperial means imperialism. That, that China hasn't just been imperial in the sense of how China has been governed internally, but that China's imperialism has had exterior manifestations. Uh, and that China has, uh, and this comes as a real shock to lots and lots of Chinese people, China has invaded other countries. Uh, and China, in the case of Vietnam, has occupied the country for a thousand years. And China, this is actually, I don't, I've only taught a couple of Korean students over the last seven years, but in those two occasions, it's been really interesting to watch the uh, interaction because the myth about Korea is particularly deep that the Koreans simply want to be like us. And um, this is the basis of the relationship, that they're almost Chinese. Something happened that didn't let them completely be Chinese. Who knows what that was? But we've always gotten along really well. That's kind of the very simplified cartoon version of, you know, in a, in a, uh, in a classroom setting, and I think more broadly in Chinese society of this. Um, Hegemony, imperialism, invasion, occupation, war, dominance, um, those are things that other peoples do. Chinese people don't do these things. Um, Chinese people and Chinese power rest on uh, attraction and on um, a desire for emulation and an eagerness to um, hug close to the um, uh, coattails or skirt or what have you of the motherland that other peoples have come toward China simply of their own free will to get the goodies that China represents in their eyes and that China has never been overbearing or imposing or certainly never uh, imperial in the way that we usually understand this word. Um, So where does this leave us? Um, the, if, the, if it is true, as I believe it to be, that these attitudes um, exist and that China has an idealized vision of its uh, place in the world, and in particular its place in its own neighborhood, what are the implications for us? Um, and this leads to the second part of the book and where I will try to wrap up so that we can engage in some discussion. Um, I think that we are in the early phases in the immediate neighborhood of China of seeing an understated, perhaps even unstated, effort to realize or to return to an idealized past 
where China uh, manages to arrive at, uh, by virtue of its preponderant size, by virtue of its preponderant wealth, uh, uh, a situation where its neighbors bow to its superiority and to its centrality, and where uh, its neighbors uh, eventually, and in one case perhaps already, uh, are willing to become willing to forsake the levers and mechanisms of the existing international system uh, in the interest of getting along well with China on the basis that China would like to establish for getting along. And I think you, I, I'm sure that some of you can imagine the case that may be the one case that already exists. I see a couple of people. I see Carl nodding and I see Jerry um, grinning. Um, uh, the case that there was for the rest of you, the benefit of everybody, that, that case is the Philippines. The Philippines won uh, by resorting to um, the kind of standard offices of the international system, a very major legal victory against China uh, uh, about um, rights to waters in the South China Sea. I explore this in length in this book also, and the history to the dispute between these two things, these two entities, and the implications of China's vision about uh, its rights in the South China Sea in general. But this, the Philippines had scored this extraordinary victory almost exactly a year ago, actually July, so a little less than a year ago. Um, and in the blink of an eye, uh, the situation has been turned around largely because of uh, a presidential election in the Philippines, but be that as it may, where the Philippines has, in, if you can, if you, in the way that the Vietnamese would-be emperor renounced his title to being an emperor, the Philippines has seemingly renounced its rights to the fruits of its legal victory and has said, we don't really want to fuss about that. We just want to get along with the central kingdom. It's more important for us to fit into the scheme of things in the way that China would like this scheme of things to work than it is to fuss over legal technicalities. Um, I'm not making a prediction here about how far China will go with other um, states in the region in this regard, but I have a, a very deep conviction that this r represents a realization of an ideal for China where other countries say that um, if for no other reason than for practicality, it makes sense to bow to China's sense of things uh, in the region because they are our biggest trading partner, because they are our biggest source of tourists, because they are willing to invest um, and can command huge amounts of capital to uh, invest quickly in gigantic schemes of infrastructure and in other things. This trumps the old rules. Let's let's get on board with them and, and do things their way because there are benefits from us. This this has a this has a, a, a this resonates deeply with the terms of the tribute system that I was trying to I was trying to avoid that phrase in the past because the tribute system, the 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 central bargain of the tribute system, and again the details were different from society to society, but the central bargain of the tribute system was consistent, and the central bargain of the tribute system was 
if you come to the Chinese court paying honor to the Chinese court in the proper way and you do not um, challenge China's superiority and centrality, then we will give you access to our markets. There was no such thing as investment back then. China didn't, couldn't say, we'll build you infrastructure. But access to our markets means we will fructify you. We will pr provide you material benefits. Um, and, and this is what seems to be happening. Uh, this is what the um, uh, recent events in the Philippines would seem to be an augury of. Um, I mentioned that the United States is the <coughs> principal obstacle to um, China's realization of this kind of arrangement with, with a broad set of countries in the region, and I believe that to be the case. I, I don't think China's imagining that. I think this is the case. Um, China, the United States maintains alliance relationships with a, a good number of, goodly number of countries in, in Asia. Um, in the regards to this conversation, the most important one, of course, is with Japan. I think that if that alliance relationship did not exist, then China would be applying more and more pressure on Japan around not just the thing that is occasionally in the headlines already, the Senkaku or Diaoyu Islands, but in general, in order to bring, as you know, Japan is facing uh, all sorts of economic pressures uh, and stagnation of growth and, and relative, not dec decline is too strong a word, but, but um, China, Japan, China would begin to use a combination of hard and soft power, meaning the implicit threat of the ability to apply military pressure on you, coupled with a soft power offer that if you come to the court paying tribute in the right way and recognize our centrality and I don't think anybody would say explicitly superiority, but implicitly that's what this means, you would defer to our interests, then we will find ways to help you, to do good things for you, to um, uh, irrigate your tourism market with lots and lots of tourists spending lots of money or build new infrastructure. Japan doesn't really need infrastructure that much, but anyway. So where does this leave the United States? Um, I think the first question is, can China, and I don't have an answer to this question, uh, can China achieve um, generalized preeminence in East Asia, given that the United States would seem, and I'm qualifying this because we are in a mo that kind of moment right now, the United States would seem to wish to remain deeply involved in a set of um, uh, alliance and deeply collaborative relations in East Asia. Uh, can China, under those conditions, uh, realistically return to some kind of preeminence? Um, I have no doubt that China would like to. The question is whether this is possible. And since I began this proje pro project, um, uh, I, w I would have been inclined toward a strong no, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Um, but given the Trump election and all that's happened in this country's political system, in the, it's almost incredibly, in the last six months, uh, or to a year, uh, I'm, I would have to temper that statement. I don't know if no, a no, an outright no is warranted anymore. Since I can't really, you know, I'm not a soothsayer, I can't really suss out what's going to happen in the future, I'll tell you why I would have said no 
anyway know that China cannot simply return to outright preeminence. And the reason is largely inherent to China. It's not about uh, the United States because, frankly, prior to Trump, one, I think most of us would have taken for granted a certain number of American attitudes and postures in its foreign relations that are now up, up for grabs. Um, the main reason, and I'm, I'm not going to get into some of the other reasons which were developed in the book, but the main reason is Chinese demographics. That China is, I think, this gets written about, but I think it is still woefully underappreciated in the midst of a demographic transition that has uh, and will have uh, very profound uh, <coughs> consequences for China and for the world. That China is transitioning in a remarkably brief period of time from a situation that a demographer, demographer would call the, a demographic dividend, where it has ever more young people entering the workforce. And because of the timing of this, coinciding with um, the reform and opening period in China and the, the, the huge investment in education and the transformation of the economy, because of the timing of this, not only were ever more young people entering the workforce in China, but every year these young people were better and better educated and, and more proficient at all sorts of things. Right? This is partly just a luck of, of history. Right? But the demographic dividend, you can see it at different points of time all over the world in different societies. India is in the midst of it right now. Africa, uh, India is sort of well into it now. Um, China's leaving it now. Africa, as Sub-Saharan Africa, is entering the demographic dividend right now. China was uh, particularly well positioned to take care of, the, take advantage of this, and this explains a lot of why China has done so well over the last 40 or so years. Um, in a historian's blink of an eye, China is going to tilt in the exact opposite direction and become a society where um, people who, this sounds very uncharitable, um, and I mean no disrespect to anyone, I'm going to be in this group myself soon, but the, 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 the people that economists speak of as the unproductive sector section of the population, <laughs> I know there are a lot of people who, <laughs> I'm trying not to look at Jerry, <laughs> I know how productive he is. Um, are going to begin to predominate. And this is going to happen on a scale that, because China is, has those numbers, China has always had these numbers, we've never seen before. And with a speed that has rarely been rivaled. So, you know, you can talk about this in Korea, Japan, Finland, Italy, various other places. But, but put that kind of speed together with the scale um, that uh, this demographic shift is going to take place in China, and I think you begin to understand a lot of things. The first thing you understand is why, as I said at the beginning of this talk, uh, Xi Jinping appears to be so assertive. Why is this guy in such a hurry? Why is he pushing on so many fronts to in integrate Central Asia and Europe with the Chinese economy through one belt, one road? Why, is he, why does he want to build aircraft carriers? It seems like it's all of a sudden. It's not all of a sudden, but but they're doing it in a pretty big hurry. Why is China pushing um, uh, on, in the South China Sea the way it's pushing? I think the answer lies to a very considerable extent in d demographics. That um, people don't, people who look at China casually or who don't understand 
who don't have an economic background or, or, or haven't studied up on the demographics typically focus on, and a lot of young Chinese people, by the way, the kinds I see at Columbia, young, smart, well-educated people, they see the last 40 years as kind of the norm, right? China grows every year. At, it's okay. It used to be 10, 12, 9, whatever, and now it's 6, 7, 8. But nonetheless, China grows really fast every year, and that's pretty much always going to be the case, right? Um, <clears throat> And this has produced an extraordinarily kind of extraordinary blossoming of wealth and wealth creation in the society and emergence of middle classes and the construction of cities. And I'm talking, every people in this room know the names of dozens and dozens of Chinese cities, but, but cities that most well-educated well Americans have never heard of. Cities that if you plop somebody down into who doesn't know China before, a non-familiar name kind of city, um, you just can't believe it. Like, this happened in the blink of an eye, right? So this is the prevailing narrative of China um, among Chinese people and among non-Chinese people. Um, the thing that this narrative does not account for is that as well as China has done in the last generation, per capita income in China today is equivalent to per capita income in Japan in maybe 1980. China has created all of this wealth and has grown by, I don't even have a percentage for you, the sort of aggregate growth over the last generation, but immensely, and it's still only as rich on a per capita basis as Japan in 1980. This is a problem if you think about the demographics. Um, uh, only the per capita income of the Japanese in 1980 and the country as a whole still without a robust, a robust social safety net or social security system. At a time when the population demographic needle is about to go from demographic, de demographic dividend to demographic deficit, like bang in the blink of an eye. By the middle of the century, 350 to 4 mil this century, 350 to 400 million people sick over the age of 65 in, 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 in one country, greater than the population, the entire population of the United States, at a per capita income level of Japan in 1980 with no robust social safety net yet um, and no universal social security system. You have a patchwork system that is very unevenly funded that favors people who live in the big eastern cities and people who work for big companies. But you don't have a really national, uh, built to any kind of Western familiar standard in the West, social security system. And so the argument that one of the arguments <coughs> for the no answer, will China be able to establish outright preeminence in its neighborhood, one, uh, one of the main no arguments that I developed in the latter portions of this book is that the demographics are such that China is going to have to attend to them that China is going to have to divert most of its available resources to the creation of chronic care and retirement homes and health insurance and social security and um, all of the things that are implicit in this arrival of 350 million 65-year-olds and older. These are people who are going to have diabetes. A quarter of Chinese people are pre-diabetic already. Um, 
you know, China, I don't remember the numbers that they're in my book, the numbers of Chinese people with dementia and Alzheimer's is going to be, you know, China will have more people with dementia and Alzheimer's than some European countries have people. Um, and you're going to have to take care of them. And the fact that, um, you know, success brings with it new obligations. And so the fact that you've created and will have created even more this big flourishing middle class in China creates middle class expectations. And so the people who have grown up with middle class expectations and who are growing up now with middle class expectations will want their state to, take, to help take care of their parents and grandparents who have these chronic diseases, who need dialysis, who are, you know, in some late stage of dementia or have recurrent cancer or who have all of the stuff that happens with aging. And on this immense, immense scale. And so the argument that I develop in the latter portions of the book, and I get into other things like, you know, um, the implications of becoming a, a, a sort of um, first-rank military power in terms of the demands of the, you know, what this requires in terms of expenditure, um, I think is on a scale that um, is unrealistic for China um, and would be not entirely realistic for China, even if the demography were not so dramatic. But the demography is such that I believe that if we can get we meaning the United States and China or the world to sort of make this less partisan, can get through the next 10 or 15 years without a major crisis involving conflict, then we meaning the world, meaning China, will enter into a phase where the needs of the society are so strong and compelling that the temptations of adventure, adventurism and assertion will begin to decline correspondingly. Um, and I will end in saying that I hope that I'm not naive and that um, one hopes that um, canes will win out over guns uh, and that there won't be, um, uh, <laughs> that the assertiveness won't, and the bumbling incompetence won't lead to uh, something really unfortunate. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Questions, comments? Please identify yourself, Carl, then Jerry. So um, thank you very much for your time. Big fan of your work. Um, I certainly think this. Carl, who are you? Um, and uh, I certainly think that the, you know, the themes that you're picking up about in terms of uh, you know, this uh, historical narrative that every country has, that China has, uh, will continue to play out partially because as you mentioned, you know, the Chinese people are more powerful and you know, China's authorities themselves are intentionally or not pivoting back to their own past. I guess one of the questions I was, I was thinking of kind of relates in some ways to your earlier work. And let me see if I can phrase it appropriately, which is, so the narrative that you're telling about you know, the historical dimension of China's, the way it thinks of itself, is very much an East Asian narrative. I mean, you know, historically, China as an empire, it was dealing with the near end countries. So you're dealing with Korea, you're dealing with Japan, you're dealing with Thailand, perhaps uh, certain powers in, in, in Indonesia. So if you're thinking about the way that narrative can play forward, you're absolutely right that you can sort of imagine China, you know, or Chinese leaders themselves thinking that maybe the past has something to teach them about how to deal with the near end countries. Similarly, it helps you understand why you know, the encounter with West or Japan was so dramatic, because suddenly you're dealing with something completely different, which actually does have, you know, in the 19th century, very powerful 
foreign country that's insisting on interacting with, with, uh, interacting with you as an equal. My question is really dealing with the other set of countries, which is Africa and Latin America. So this is a group of countries that China, you know, historically didn't really have that many relations with. When you think of, if you're thinking about this historical narrative and the impact that it has on current Chinese policy, what does it teach us about how Chinese leaders might think about their interactions with African countries or Latin American countries? Is, is there anything in there that we should, we should think about and what it might lessons it'll have about Chinese relations with that part? Sure. Um, so, some of you may not know, and many of you will not have read my previous book was about China's relationship with Africa. And there was a big debate with my publisher at the time over the, over the title of the book. And the title that the book has is not the title that I had initially imagined. And the title that I had initially suggested was Haphazard Empire, which in light of what I'm about to tell you itself isn't the best title. Um, uh, anyway, um, I think that as people, as observers and journalists, uh, began to watch um, the China-Africa relationship, and you can extend what I'm saying to the China-Latin America relationship, unfold. People were asking, I think, the wrong question, that uh, does this mean that China wants to take over Africa? Does this mean that China wants to become imperial? Does this mean that China wants to be a hegemon in far-flung parts of the world? I don't think that that was ever what was intended, and in fact, the reason I had suggested the title haphazard, the word haphazard in my title, was that I thought that there are a lot of unintended consequences that are flowing from this, um, such as, for example, the establishment of large, let's call them colonies, of Chinese residents in African countries. That doesn't mean that the countries are becoming colonies of China. <coughs> China became deeply involved with Africa because in the early 1990s there were a set of high-level policy decisions in China about what do you do after this initial phase of the reform and opening period uh, ended and, and, and after having seen it go unusually well, what course should China take? As you know very well, when Deng Xiaoping begins to uh, um, advocate special economic zones, there were a lot of conservatives in the Chinese um, nomenclature who didn't like the idea. They, they opposed him. They didn't want, they thought this was, oh, Mao said he's going to put us on the capitalist road. Look, he's going to put us on the capitalist road. And that's why these were enclaves in the very far periphery of China in places like Shenzhen, right? Out of sight, out of mind. So, so they succeed wildly. The conservatives lose the day. Uh, you have the reform and opening period based, you know, you have the takeoff of the special economic zones. And in the early 90s, you have this level of, you know, this high-level conversation in, in leading small groups and the like about what do we do next. And the conclusion was, and I'm being very quickly, quick and simple about that, I plan to write about this later, <coughs> that being an inward recipient of globalization, meaning other people's capital and technology, is good. But the biggest payoff is being an outward agent of globalization, that when our investment and our energies and our technology are being projected outward, then you have the highest return in all regards, not just capital, but societal for China. And so this series of conversations, 91, 92, 93, um, lead to the promulgation of going out as a strategy for China. And it is very widely underappreciated that Jiang Zemin 
very specifically that far back said Africa should be the place we do this in first. The reason why we should do this in Africa first is because it's a um, uh, it's not a dense densely competitive environment where the A team of the West and of Japan is represented and we don't have global corporations yet and we can send people out there and kind of cut their teeth and gain some experience in a low-cost way. Uh, just try things and see what works. And nobody will be paying attention. No, they're not, look, the West isn't paying attention to Africa in the early 90s. So let's go there to do this. I'm, I'm convinced that that was the big thought, that it wasn't about let's gobble up Africa or let's you know, somehow place Africa under our sway, et cetera. And that this was, in effect, a kind of training school. It was a, it was a, it was a, um, a, an apprenticeship for later ambition and later vocations that we're seeing from China right up until this moment with One Belt, One Road, that Africa was a, a, an apprentice shop for One Belt, One Road. You go to Africa and you send your companies and you build infrastructure on a large scale and you figure out models of state financing and you, you figure out um, you know, what pays off, what doesn't pay off, what are the risks. Uh, associated with all of this. China gave itself 15 years to do that in a part of the world where almost no one was paying attention uh, and where there was no great competition. Um, and now we are seeing China implement the lessons that it learned from that in other parts of the world that are much more important to China. Africa, for all that has been said, is not that important to China. African trade with China has increased very rapidly, but that's only because it started from nothing, right? It doesn't compare to African trade with almost any other part of the um, Chinese trade with almost any other part of the world. Um, and so I'm not sure if I've answered your question, but I, I, I think that, um, you know, so I spent a lot of time in my remarks dismantling Chinese myth or taking on, you know, the mythical aspects of China's own internal narrative, right? But I think it is true that China does not see any place for itself as a traditional Western-style imperial power that wishes to go in an extra-continental way out into the world and to kind of grab real estate or to impose its control over, over other societies. I think that's generally true. It doesn't mean China's better than anybody else or they're more moral or less moral. It means it, it, it's making a reading of what, what best suits it in the moment and what will work in the world at the moment. and. And those sorts of things don't make sense now. Jerry? Yeah. Uh, Jerry, and then you can go. Listening to you raises so many questions. <laughs> I might say parenthetically at the beginning, three months ago I met with uh, Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen, and I thought she would want to talk about cross-strait relations and all the things that concern us or the South China Sea. She wanted to talk about how is Taiwan going to cope with its social security problem. Mm -hmm. That is her biggest, most immediate question. Mm -hmm. Demographics. Can China alter its demographics? Uh, are we in the U.S. going to be victims of demographics to the same extent? If not, why not? Is it because of immigration? which we're now trying to close off. And China has never been big on immigration. Japan has never been 
big on immigration. Finally, what's original about your book? Uh, I take it you haven't tried to change the Fairbank Sinocentric world tribute system model to a great extent. At least there was a newspaper story that made it seem like you were giving a new historical interpretation, <coughs> going back to the Jungha voyages of the earlier period. But I, I didn't hear any of that. It sounded to me like you're giving us a, a very articulate review of what I learned 50 years ago when I started teaching at Harvard, the Sinocentric world and that, all the good work that was done there. Is the original part of your book the application of the impact of that tradition to contemporary circumstances? That's what it sounds like, which leads us back to can China alter its demographics? Um, thank you, Jerry. Um, so it's, I'm a little bit ill at ease to try to pronounce to everybody what's, what's original about me or my work. Um, I guess the best answer is you'll have to read it. Um, I, I, don't, I, I don't want to be too flip about this, but um, I, you anticipated part of what I would have to give as an answer, and that is um, I think it's underappreciated how deeply, you know, so China people know how deeply the history, history resonates in China and how important China history is in a way that your average Westerner, certainly American, let me not extend this too broadly because we have such a brief history, right? Um, Trump knows about Andrew Jackson and about, the Civil War. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and Frederick Douglass, too. <laughs> um, uh, I think it's hard for an American, and maybe even I, should, I would be comfortable saying for a Westerner, to imagine how deeply has history resonates for educated Chinese people. Um, and so I try to explore how China understands its own history and try to inject that understanding into an assessment of China's present position in the world and a, an anticipation of what this means for the near to medium term future. That's what I try to do in the book. Um, and Wang Gungwu, who the um, uh, Singaporean scholar, um, who uh, was very good to me in the early research phases of this book, um, s said to me, again, for in the, at a formative moment when I was thinking about what I wanted to write here, basically that, that China has never really been fully on board with Westphalia or with the international state system that, or order that emerged from the um, post-World War II era. Um, and that the answers to this lie in China's long-term, meaning really long-term, meaning back to the Han, going back to the Han Dynasty, sense of its own self place in the world. Um, and so that's, this book is an exploration of that. And yes, I, I did read you know, the same scholars um, that, that you read 50 years ago. Um, and a lot of that work remains valid, I think. Um, I try to avoid overstating, as I did with you in speaking, uh, you know, putting too much weight in the phrase tribute system, right? Um, but I think Sinocentrism is a real thing. That, and I think you can hear it in present-day Chinese diplomatic language. 
young Jetscher told the Southeast Asians. Absolutely. We're big a big we country, and you're not, right? Um, if he had just stopped with we're a big country, it, one would have, it would have somehow been a little bit easier to swallow. But he said, and you're not, right? Um, so on the demography thing, a few things. Um, this is another one of these incredible imponderables that who would have imagined? So immigration is one of the best things the United States has going for it. The, uh, never mind your politics, right? The science on this is, is rock solid. It's just rock solid. The Republicans talk, I mean, and I don't say, that, I hope this doesn't come across in a par too partisan a way, but the principal, one of the principal kind of worries of the Republican Party over the last generation has been, what's going to happen with all these entitlements, Social Security, how are they going to pay for themselves? Guess what? Immigrants pay for that. They come in and they have um, demographic dividend kind of demographics, and they... They work hard jobs and they pay into the tax system and they keep our median population, our age, down. That helps fund all of the stuff that the Republicans say is in crisis. And so to have a wing of the Republican Party or somebody who wasn't even in the Republican Party capture the Republican Party and say, immigration is the worst thing. It's like killing, they're raping the country, they're doing all this. It's just the most unbelievable thing. I mean, unbelievable is an easily abused word. This is unbelievable to me. <laughs> In terms of Taiwan, Taiwan's further along this curve than China is, and Taiwan really has to worry. And so Taiwan's worry is not just what do we do, how can, we, can this be reversed, where do we get these people? The most obvious answer to where do you get the people would be from China, but that, that poses a very special challenge to Taiwan and to the Taiwanese, for whom, as you well know, identity is a very special thing with a, a very strong political valence to it. And so China, if Taiwan, even if it could o uh, uh, overcome any legal or political differences with China about immigration, has for its own reasons a kind of um, unease about letting too many Chinese people immigrate. So that creates the additional question of, so where will they come from to renew the population and to keep the age down, right, median age down? You mentioned Japan having this problem. Well, the reason why China and Taiwan and Japan, one of the reasons they have this problem is because of their language system. If you grew up, the, the Americans don't really understand, but English is like the US dollar. It's the reserve currency. Everybody everywhere studies English now. This is an incredible boon for the United States. We just fell into our laps. We didn't do anything to make this happen. But it's a fact of life. Everybody studies English. Everybody. Everybody doesn't study Chinese. And the Chinese are working very hard to get some people to study Chinese. Right? But this is, if it's ever going to mean anything, it's, we're talking about multiple generations of struggle and based on continued Chinese success in economics and culture and things like that to create the kind of momentum or traction that you need to get anything even in the same ballpark as the adherence to English because of America's long track record of wealth and cultural, you know, soft power, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the first piece of the answer I would give you. What can be done about this? The answer, why is this the case? Why do we, some countries have good demographics and other countries don't have good demographics? I'm a little bit embarrassed because Joan Kaufman is sitting um, a couple of seats down and she knows this stuff very, very well. But let me give you my layman's answer to a piece of it. 
one of the most important pieces of this has to do with the situation of women in a society. So if you go, if you look in a lot of traditional um, societies or a lot of non-cash-based societies, which China was during most of the revolutionary period, or you look at pre-modern societies or pre-industrial societies, um, social security was based on a notion that having a lot of children was the social safety net. And so one of the roles of women in the economic equation of those societies was to have and raise lots of children. Because when, you know, if you have five or eight children, I'm one of eight children, by the way. If you have five or eight children, maybe two or three, or if you're lucky, more than that, will end up, something will become of them. And they will contribute to the household and take care of their parents in old age, right? Well, as a society becomes more and more affluent, as, and as particularly as industrialization proceeds and as women enter the workforce and education levels rise, women don't want to be confined to those roles. Women begin to see their, women especially, but even men also play a part in this. But women particularly, they want to be have other kinds of realization, self-realization. And this leads to the what can be done about it piece. There's very good work on European society's efforts through cash inducements, through tax structure, through various other incentives to try to get women as they see their demographics weaken, to have more children, and the payoff has been almost nothing. It doesn't work. This notion of women wanting to have, so if I want to have a child, I'll have a child, but I don't want to just be a child haver. I want to do other stuff in my life. I want to, you know, it's a very powerful thing. And so you see this in China now. And there's a very broad misconception that the one-child policy is what flattened China's population structure. That's not true. Um, fertility rates in Chinese women began to drop sharply in the 19, early 1970s. And that is, and it begins to happen first in the rich even then, they were richer than the rest of the country, even though they weren't rich like today, eastern cities. And so you see in the eastern cities, if you look at the population, the demographics, women in the eastern cities of China in the 1970s stopped wanting to have lots of children. And it has continued downward, and to the point where China finally says we need to drop the one-child policy, and suddenly they're saying in cities like Shanghai and various other places, we'll throw money at you. The women still don't want to have more children. Um, and so this leads me back to where I began. The notion that the United States, the, the immigration society par excellence, without comparison in the world, would have a politician stand up and say, we don't want immigrants, at a time when everybody's trying to figure out where do we get more people, is just incredibly difficult to, 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 uh, to, to grasp. Chinese realize this, that they should start an importing policy for people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They've Im implemented in the last three, four years a green card system. It's still small in scale. But I imagine this to be like so many Chinese policy things where they roll out something in a kind of a, in a sandbox and they, they see how it goes and then once they've got all the kinks worked out, then they do it in a bigger way. I think that's what the green card program in China is about today. Huge challenge. Absolutely. Let's take two more questions quickly, and then we'll have to stop. And please say who you are. 
I just very short, you know. Please uh, introduce yourself. My, my, my name is Sean, and I'm a professor from Shanghai University, and now I'm based in New York. Um, I have a lot of, you know, uh, questions, but I'm just uh, short. And uh, from the history, uh, you mentioned the Han Dynasty, but I, to my understanding, I researched a little bit, a little bit to the Ming Dynasty. So Ming Dynasty, a lot of corruptions in the Chinese history. But what the situations will happen? And nowadays in China, it's a very anti-corruption, well lead to the democracies in this country. And can you give some comments on that? You said you know, anti. That would be a very, very, and now it's a heavy, you know, topics on the body, Chinese and corruption and anti-corruption. You said anti-corruption will lead to democracy in China. Is yeah. that what you said? Yeah. Okay. Um, pretty, pretty key. Okay. Um, so. Um, Jerry Cohen asked me about John King Fairbank, who was a Harvard scholar of the tribute system and of other things involving China a long time ago. At, um, you know, at, back in that era, there were two schools of thought about the tribute system. One of, one of them, and I think this has become the prevalent stream, says that the tribute system is really about Ming, Qing, China. Fairbank I think believed that the tribute system goes back the way I say it goes back to the, the Han Dynasty. Mm -hmm. And that initially the conquest of all of what is today southern China involved tributary behavior. That you know it wasn't all in, in the blink of an eye everything was assimilated into China, but you had a progressive assimilation of surrounding peoples into a Chinese unitary state. And in the in the transitional phases this involved tributary behavior. And the borders of China were eventually established at the limits of uh, the assimilation, the capacity for assimilation via conquest and via the movements of people uh, by China into peripheral areas. And so the ideal for the Chinese was, so in the places we were not able to assimilate, meaning the outer periphery, let's establish a harmony based on tributary patterns with those other people the Koreans, the Vietnamese, etc. That was your first question. Your second question um, is corruption, is anti-corruption, uh, does it hold some kind of promise for democratization in China? My short answer would have to be, based on what I've seen, no. And the reason is, of however salutary anti-corruption efforts are, that the anti-corruption efforts are led by, um, in an untransparent way, by a uh, closely held group of you know power that does is not subject to any kind of um, uh, due process or transparency. And so this leads to the very natural suspicion that a lot of what is called anti-corruption is actually political. Uh, behavior that it is so this guy or that guy might be a threat to me or might be a threat to my friends and therefore let me go investigate him and in a system that doesn't have an independent press and doesn't have you know in which the very lawyers who defend people are persecuted you don't have the opportunity to challenge the basis really of a politically driven prosecution and so I don't think I think what this does ultimately is create new forms of corruption, 
Um, some truly corrupt people probably get caught up in it. I'm, I have no doubt about that. That some truly corrupt people, maybe many truly corrupt people, end up getting punished. But this creates new kinds of distortion and corruption itself. And none of which do I think personally is likely to lead to democratization. In fact, I think the very purpose of it from the high political level is to avoid democratization. The, the reason why the, the current leadership is so interested in anti-corruption, I think, is because it came to understand corruption as being perhaps the greatest threat to the legitimacy of the Communist Party. And so it came to believe that if we can only stop corruption or stop the widespread per perception of corruption, then we can, in, we can um, bolster or embellish our legit legitimacy. And if that's your motive, democracy is not a likely outcome. John? Well, I'll make it short. And uh, first, thank you for a great Say talk. Who you are. Oh, I'm Joan Kaufman. I'm at the Schwartzman Scholars Program at the moment. And uh, so um, thank you for a great talk. And I'm really looking forward to reading the book. And on the demographic dividend issue, I want to just push on that a little bit. Because China, you know, uh, even while the fertility was coming down, the one-child policy totally exacerbated mm -hmm. the, the, the situation so that there's a disproportionate number of people who are getting old with a smaller workforce. And it's, the, the problem is being, is now, it's not in the future because there's a drop-off in the new labor entrance and, you know, it's not contributing to any kind of pension system <coughs> elderly who are entering the um, you know, pension age, mm -hmm. those of them that are entitled to pension. So, you know, because of that, the Chinese are really trying to transform the economy. Labor costs are going up because of scarcity. And they're trying to transform the economy to more service-oriented and less manufacturing-based so that, you know, that won't happen as much. So what do you think are the prospects? Here's the question, right? Oh, and also, just to say that the demographic dividend in China is different than what will happen in Africa and India because of China's early investments in education and health. So it's they have it's this always different everywhere. Yeah, they have this longevity issue sure. and good, healthy and educated workforce, whereas you can't really say the same for sure. Africa, what's going to happen in sure. Africa. It's a myth in a way, I think, because it's much more problematic mm -hmm. or necessarily in India. So, um, but it's created this huge problem of the aging population in China getting, getting, didn't get rich before they got old. But their neighbors, Korea, Japan, and others, have survived as has Western Europe. So the question is, is China going to be able to think itself out of that uh, trap, right, and be able to deal with, um, you know, by raising the retirement age and doing a, a bunch of other things that will, you know, uh, sort of, you know, delay the need to pay pensions and things like that. And there's a lot of stuff going on right now talking about this problem because it's in their face already. But do you see, what do you see as the prospect for this? Because I don't know that it's going to be as dire as you predict. I'm the first person to raise the problem, but I would be, I wouldn't necessarily say it's necessarily going to be as dire as there. There's a lot of experience about how countries with aging populations and uh, you know, have sort of transformed their economies into right. uh, in different ways. So you used the phrase, get old before they get rich, which I deliberately avoided because it's become a kind of a cliche of journalism. And I mean, it's a good description of, of a situation, but it's been so widely used. Um, 
you know, this is what differentiates China, not just from its East Asian neighbors, and you might have included Taiwan in, yeah. in the list that you gave, uh, but also from Europe and eventually from the United States, right? Um, as I said, in a, on a per capita basis, China today, after all of these years of high growth, is only as rich as Japan was in 1980. Um, so if I don't think anybody believes China is going to continue to grow between now and 2050 anything like at the rate that it grew up until now during the reform era. And in fact, depending on who you talk to, there are very respectable economists who say probably on average, and who knows, I'm not an economist, but there are very respectable economists who say, who, you know, maybe between now and 2050 the average rate of growth is only in the uh, – a, a, an upside scenario, 3-4 percent, right, which still doesn't put China on a per capita base wealth basis of similar to a Western economy, right? And so if you're starting with those fundamentals, with a society that doesn't have, as we speak, uh, a fully elaborated and certainly not robust social security system and safety net, then you get a sense of the dimensions of the problem. Mm -hmm. Now, you say that China is um, uh, trying to move into a high um, service, service industry-oriented economy, but there's a certain, there's an irony that in this exchange that you, most, that you all have no way of appreciating, because I went to China to report this very so topic. You can Google my name in the Atlantic magazine a, a little over a year ago. And Joan suggested a lot of the people I spoke to, the Chinese experts I spoke to for this piece. But the irony is this. The people you sent me to speak to said, it's really a mistake to think the service economy is going to be a solution. Because the... Pro speak to them again. <laughs> <laughs> because the productivity growth in the service economy is negative. We all know in this, from our experience of America, that working at the mall in a non-union job without benefits is not the same as working for GM, right? If we're just going to talk about the working class experience, right? Yeah. Well, so most Chinese service industry people, that's what it's going to be like. It's not, you can't, don't have, shouldn't imagine the bulk of service meaning, you know, I'm at some fancy pants thing doing something really extraordinary. Most service people are serving drinks or, you know, cleaning clothes or, you know, very ordinary things. Um, and the economists that I spoke to in Beijing a little over a year ago on this topic said, this is kind of the dirty secret of Chinese economic reform right now, that productivity growth is declining in services in China. Um, and part of the reason, one of the reasons, and that nobody pretended this is the only reason or maybe not even the main reason, but almost everyone I spoke to said part of the reason is because the economy is so protected that for political reasons, the state doesn't want to open services up to international competition. And so you, I, I was in China in January, and I, I, was in, I traveled around, but I was in Xi'an for a few days, and I went for two nights in a row for whatever reason I went to a movie theater. And the movie theater is like 600 people working at a movie theater with 10 people in the theater. And I'm thinking, this is the service economy, right? I mean, if I'm in America, you know, maybe I take me a minute longer to get my popcorn, but you can imagine the business making money, 
right? Anyway, um, uh, there was another piece to your question. Um, so you're right about the one-child policy. The one-child policy, my only point was that fertility decline began before the one, and began seriously before the one-child policy. I don't mean to say that the one-child policy didn't impact things. Yeah, it it did. The problem is now you have all of these smart women who have much more edu higher education in, in urban China after all these years who are going to be extreme, if it's at all possible, which I doubt, but if it's at all possible, it's going to be extremely difficult to incentivize them to start having they're lots of children. They're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. They want to buy nice clothes. I know a lot of women of this age. They want to travel around. They want to, you know, they want to do stuff. They don't, <laughs> right? As they should. <laughs> yeah, as they should. The final thing I want to say is, and, and, and I'm, I know Margot wants to conclude here, but the final <laughs> thing I want to say, so you made a really important point, that the, a demographic dividend is not automatic anything by itself. Whether or not the dividend means something positive in economic terms means depends on whether the economic conditions have been created in part by the national government in question and in part by the global economy. The beautiful thing for China in terms of the um, demographic dividend is it peaked right at the moment when China was entering the global economy. Globalization has been extraordinarily good to China. Chi the demographic dividend ha coincided with that. And China's university system and schools were, were just mushrooming, and all of that just happened at the same time. And that's, not, and that's because this is to say that it wasn't just some passive thing like, oh, they had a lot of young people. Um, and so Africa is about to have the biggest demographic dividend the world has ever seen. 1.1 billion Africans today, 2 billion by the middle of this century. No one knows because we're projecting so far out, but between three and five billion Africans at the end of this century. Um, and whether it's a good thing or not is going to depend on those two things. Africa will not, coming this late into globalization, will not have the propitious entry into the world economy moment that China, China enjoyed. You know, China has already occupied lots of the low-rung stuff, and it's casting off a lot of that stuff to places like Vietnam and Bangladesh and various other places. But what's going to be left for, for Africa is a, is a very open question, right? And then you have the question of governance in Africa. So will governments in Africa be capable of the kind of governance that, that the Chinese state displayed at this, at this really lucky moment? History suggests not, right? And so, so you know, it could be a real mess. <coughs> we'll be, yes. It'll be time for somebody to take care of us. <laughs> On that note, please join me in thanking Howard. This was really wonderful, I think. And there are copies of the book.